Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I think that most people in this country are pleased with the idea of job creation. I think most people in this country are pleased with the idea of growing industry and expanding the things we do and creating new opportunities and being on the front line of innovation. I think all those things are true. However, I also think that there are some people right now who probably are hearing the price tag that is attached to the federal government's announcement from a little while back about the electric vehicle battery plant that is being subsidized in St. Thomas for Volkswagen. And hearing today that the amount the federal government is going to be subsidizing to make this happen is $13 billion dollars and saying, oh, wait a second, Um, I love all those other things you said before. That seems like an awful lot of money. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business joins us now. Marvin, thanks for this today. Happy to be with you. Again, all those things I think can be true. We like jobs, we like innovation, we like factories, we like all these things. But to compete, I guess, with the U.S. and do this, we had to throw in an awful lot of money. Is $13 billion to bring an electric battery plant a reasonable amount of money to spend? Well, it feels high, absolutely. I, I would agree with you. Um, now, we need to say a couple of things. It's not $13 billion up front. No. The subsidy amounts to between $500 million and $1 uh, uh, billion every year in U.S. dollars. In U.S. dollars, it's when you convert it to Canadian. That's how you get the number as big as it gets. And it is to match the subsidies that were announced by the Biden administration in their in in, uh, uh, in, in, in what is it called Inflation Reduction Act that they had, the deal that we've struck with Volkswagen this also caps it at a maximum of that amount. Should the Biden government uh, change the subsidies or reduce them? or eliminate them altogether, then we would match in the same way. There are some production targets that have to be met. If they weren't met, it would be reduced. So we're talking about the worst-case scenario, but it is an awful lot of money. I think the flip side of this is it's also a very, very big factory. When they are done, this will be the largest factory in Canada. I think the number is something like 330 football fields worth of of factory space. It would be absolutely the largest thing that we've ever seen in Canadian history. And it is in the green economy where we want jobs. So I I think we can debate, is it too much subsidy? But they're also going to have to do something. So is $500 U.S. a year okay? That gives you $5 billion over 10 years. In this case, it's $10 billion U.S. over 10 years. Uh, you know, is that too much? It's hard to know uh, exactly what the right number is. And, and absolutely, and, and it becomes something where, where one of the questions that came to me from this is many times in the past when we have heard people talk about, well, should we be luring companies here with tax breaks or incentives or subsidies or whatever else? One of the comments always is, well, if you do it for them, <laughs> then you know, do it for company A, well, then company B and C and D are going to want it. And they may already be here and say, well, I'll leave if you don't offer it. Does this, does this create a situation where we're going to have to do this for many other companies or they could say, fine, I'm out of here if you don't want to. Right. Well, let's first back that up a little bit and say we've already been doing this. So as you might recall, a couple of years ago, Jerry Diaz, who was head of the union that involved auto workers, went to what were called the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and at that time Chrysler, now it's Stellantis, and said, we want to see you making electric vehicles in Canada. We want your pledges. They said, well, we'll we'll agree to do this if the federal government and the province kicks in some money. 
And so they've already committed uh, truly billions of dollars. Now, it was more the single digits of billions, so $1 billion here, $2 billion there, maybe $3 billion there. It certainly didn't amount to this big number altogether. But we have been doing this, and we have been doing it on a strategic basis. So, uh, again, I hate to be so blunt about this, but if you're a farmer and you want to to grow marijuana or something, no, I'm sorry, we don't have any subsidies for you. So strategically, we pick certain kinds of industries, and there are lots of arguments that say governments should not be betting strategically as to which industries will survive and which ones won't. But that's what they're doing here. They're saying, we think the future is going to be electric vehicles. We think batteries are going to be a part of that. We want made-in-Canada solutions. So we are prepared to invest Canadian taxpayer dollars to make that happen. Um, so this, this is the logic behind it. To you and I, it does seem like an awful lot of money. Now, again, put it in context, the Canadian uh, government budget every year is $540 billion. So it's a very small slice of that that's going to it. But nonetheless, uh, this is what you now have to do, I think, to compete on that international level. I, You know, it's funny you mentioned that because that was exactly where I was going to go next is does it, does it, even though this seems like a lot of money, is it more palatable to some people and to the government? Because, you know, things have grown so much in how much we spend that, you know, relatively speaking, it's really, I mean, a billion dollars is not really a billion dollars anymore. Once upon a time, we would have heard a billion dollars and it would have been outrageous. And now we've thrown around so many bees in the last, you know, through COVID and everything else. It doesn't even seem like that much. Well, right. Here, here's another one. Here's a T word for you, the Canadian government uh, debt. Now, this is just the government debt of Canada, not the provinces, not any municipalities, crossed a trillion dollars a couple of years ago, and that caused eyebrows to raise. Um, remember, resolving during COVID, where we had to borrow, I think it was $300 billion. So, you know, we, we do start to get used to it. We call it creeping decimalism. The more you hear big numbers, the less they seem to excite you anymore. To give you another example, I can remember when the top prize in a lottery was $100,000. Winterio. <laughs> and if I tell you there's 100000 you can win, most people just kind of yawn and say, if you don't give me a chance to win $50 million, why am I going to bother? So we're all a bit like that. Uh, and I think the question was, you know, uh, is Volkswagen, was Volkswagen seriously looking at the United States? Was this us or Alabama? And in this case, we won one for a change. I think that's the way you have to look at it, and I just hope that the the deal that they've struck has all the guarantees that we need. So should the market change in some way, we're not necessarily on the hook. I think they've done that. I think this is a solid agreement, but yes, again, it is an awful lot of money. And last thing, one of the other things that some people have said is, and I don't know if this is a fair comment or not, this is not a Canadian company. We are sending $13 billion to a foreign company. Should the Canadian government be doing that? I, I, I kind of think many companies are not Canadian companies. I don't know if you were only going to give grants to Canadian companies. I don't know how you grow, but it is sending money to a foreign company. Well, in a sense, but it's giving them money so they can build here in Canada uh, and create jobs here in Canada, create a factory here in Canada that will pay taxes here in Canada. And, uh, you know, there are going to be a lot of jobs in the St. Thomas area as a result of it. So, yes, again, technically speaking, you are subsidizing a company that's based out of Germany, but it will probably be done 
down through the Volkswagen Canada subsidiary. So I don't know anymore. We live in a multinational world. Is Tim Hortons a Canadian company? Remember, mm. a yeah. big chunk of Brazilian money is in Tim Hortons. Anything that's traded on the stock market can be bought by anyone in the world. Uh, so, you know, what does that mean anymore? In some ways, I think we've gotten past this idea of a national uh, company, but but we do have segments that we want to see grow, as we saw during COVID. Are we happy that vaccines were not made in Canada? I think many people were very stunned to learn that. So we want a Canadian vaccine industry. Well, do we want a Canadian electric battery industry? This may be what we have to pay to make sure it happens. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks for jumping in. Really appreciate it. Happy to help you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think that there, what we're going to talk about next is probably something you have maybe thought, but neither you nor I had the academic heft behind it to say for sure that this was the case or to, you know, to really be anything other than sort of screaming at windmills and saying, you know, it seems that people are angrier now. Well, could it be, especially with young people, could it have something to do with the pandemic and the lack of socialization and social media and a bunch of other things that may have factored into this? Well, a sociologist, a professor at University of Western says, yeah, the pandemic may have made Canadian youth meaner and less empathetic. Her name is Caitlin Mendez. She's an associate professor. She is a Canada Research Chair in Inequality and Gender. She joins us now. Thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Hi, thanks so much for having me. When I read this story today about you talking about this, I must say, as I said off the top, I've thought this, but I mean, I, who am I going to, you know, what do I have to say about this? It just, it seems this way. It, I think an awful lot of people, when you said this, probably said, thank goodness someone is saying it who's got some sort of academic credentials and research credentials, because this <laughs> seems like it's the case. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been really interesting. I've had a lot of people reach out to me today and say similar things. What do you think? So do you believe that it is the, uh, maybe it's all of the above, but do you think it's the lack, the, the time during COVID when kids were apart from each other, was it the lack of socialization? Is it the fault of social media? Is there something else going on that may have led to these changes if they, if they do exist? Yeah, I think it's probably quite complicated and I think it can't, it's very likely that we can't just pin it on one thing. So definitely people struggle during the pandemic and so people emerge from the pandemic different states of, you know, mental well-being. Some people really, really struggled. But I think, uh, and this is what young people were, were telling us, um, was that they noticed changes. So especially as the young people were using digital technologies, they noticed changes. In, in, in themselves or in their friends? In their friends. Okay. So they were reporting higher rates of harassment, homophobia, racism, all these kinds of horrible practices, body shaming. So young people were telling us that these, these sorts of experience had increased during the course of COVID. So I think partly, you know, it can be that people were just struggling with the pandemic, but I do think it has something to do with the increased screen time. So uh, this was a study that we did a survey with almost 600 young people. Uh, and 96% of them told us that their screen time had increased quite dramatically during COVID. So young people were not just young people, but this was the focus of my study with young people. You know, we're, we're really relying on digital technologies. And I think that one thing that's really clear when you're using digital technologies is that it's much easier to be not empathetic, to be mean, 
right? So it's easy to send off a nasty message because you don't have to look at that person in the face and see the way that they respond. Sure. But let me ask you this to follow that up then, because I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's like being in your car and giving someone the finger and you would never do that walking along the sidewalk because you sort of feel anonymous. But just because you can feel less empathetic, why would people automatically start being less empathetic or be meaner? What is it that, what's the trigger that makes them do that? Is it just that they can or did something change that made them want to do it more? Well, that's such a great question. I don't, I can't answer that definitively, but I can say, I think, you know, young people told us that they were bored. And so you can see, for example, group chats became like a really key source of a lot of this meanness. So you start off a, start off a group chat, maybe legitimately talking about coursework. Well, soon you finish talking about your coursework, school, everything. And it becomes really easy to just say, hey, Joe's a jerk. So I think that the conversations, you know, often in these group chats that started out for, I think, really positive reasons would often take maybe like a more downward turn. So I think probably kids just had too much time on their hands um, because they couldn't do anything else. They were forced to stay at home. All the sports, all the activities, all the socializing they would normally do was done. So this was kind of a form of entertainment, a way to pass the time. And I think it just became easy for and, people to, to do this. And there is something that I've argued for a long time. And again, people may agree, they may disagree. One of the challenges with social media and with texting is that when you and I are talking right now, and even now we're not face to face, we're talking over the radio, over the phone. So you can't see necessarily my visual cues, but at least you can hear the inflection in my voice. And so if I say something that is sarcastic, presumably you can pick up, okay, he's joking. Whereas, you know, your, your example of Joe's a jerk, that may be a joke when they write it, but it doesn't necessarily come across that way when you see it written down in social media or on your text. I think you're absolutely right. And many of us who are grown up know how many times or how easy it is to misinterpret yes. messages, emails, for example, the, the way, you know, the lack of punctuation and, and it may not be intentional, but absolutely, it's really hard for us to read into these. So th there's a quote that was from the, I read the story in the National Post today about this. And let me read this quote. There was likely, this is, I, I think this is your quote. I think, yeah, this is you. Just making sure I'm quoting you to you. Um, this was likely due to things like the lack of eye contact, facial expression, human touch, and even voice intonations. Just what we're talking about. Let me just go to one of those, to facial expression, because... Even if you could be with other people, one of the things that for a year and a half or two years we had to do was wear a mask. And there have been people through the time who have said, look, you got to wear a mask because of the virus. But we're losing something when you can't see facial expressions. We lose the ability to give off and pick up cues. If you're a young person, especially, who doesn't have the life experience already, is that something that's easy to get lost in translation? A hundred percent. I think you've summed that up beautifully. So, you know, those of us who are adults have had a lifetime of practicing this and it's not even easy for us. So imagine how difficult it's been for young people who, yeah, you know, they're having to wear masks. They haven't seen people. You know, these are really critical years in their life for developing these sorts of social skills, people skills, empathy skills. Uh, and so I think they really missed out on it. So what does the what does seeing someone's face have to do with empathy? Well, again, because if I say something, 
Um, I can see the response in your face. I can tell whether I've gone too far. So maybe I do say something that's slightly inappropriate. Maybe I push it too far. If I can see not even your face, your body language, you know, sometimes you can even kind of feel the atmosphere when you're in the room with someone. You can drop back and say, oh, wait, sorry, you know, maybe I went too far there. Whereas if I just sent you that message and I can't see how you respond, there's no recourse for me to kind of go back and try to try to make things right for you as well. So it, there are things that we can do in our life that we missed out on, let's say. Like, let's say someone doesn't learn to read early. There's a chance that they can still be taught how to read. It's not like just mm-hmm. because you didn't learn by the time you were seven, you're never going to read. If you, because of COVID, because of this time, because of the lost learning of facial cues and other things, is this lost? Are these kids now forever going to be behind because they can't? Or is this something that we expect, you know, give it another year or two when they're back around people again, socializing, it'll return to a normal that we knew before. Well, I think what a wonderful question, and I think that is exactly the question. And I think the answer to that really depends on how much we as a society put in to making sure that young people develop those sorts of skills. So I know lots of people who are teachers who talk about how kids come into the classroom without even saying hello to the teacher, making eye contact. So I think that these are basic skills that need to be taught and they can be taught of course they can be taught but it requires someone to take the time or lots of people to take the time to teach people how to engage in this way is this something that we can enforce in in other words can a teacher is a teacher going to get away in 2023 with saying listen if you're going to come in the class you're going to look up you're going to respect me as an adult you're going to say good morning i'll say good morning back or is this something that just has to i hate this word but i'm going to use it organically happen Well, I think that it needs to be much more structured than that, and I think much more thought through. So I definitely know teachers who are doing that, who are really conscious of this, and so they're making an effort. Or same thing, I have kids who do hockey, for example, and the organizers make a point of when the kids come in to check in, that it's the kids who speak to the organizers to check in and not the parents speaking for them. And they reward kids who who are making eye contact and saying good morning and, you know, talking to them. So, um, you know, I, I think it requires people to be conscious and deliberate and really taking the time to make sure that they give young people the chance to practice these skills. And how much lies on the responsibility of the parents? Oh, so much. <laughs> so much. I mean, we can say schools need to do a better job and schools should play a role. They can play a role. But I do think ultimately it does come down to parenting. Uh, and I think this is something parents, if it's not on your radar, Pay attention to how your kids interact with with other kids, with other adults. And if you see something that you're thinking, oh, maybe that's not quite right, make sure you take the time to talk to your kids and and role model, you know, model the kinds of behaviors or have a chat with them about the kinds of things that they can expect or you should expect them to do when they're speaking to other people. And yeah, because here's the the challenge with that is uh, you and I both know and everyone else listening knows this too, not every parent... Uh, let's say a teacher or a principal called home to say, Sally was, you know, being mean at school today. Can you please work on it? Not every parent is going to love getting a phone call challenging their child because their child is perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're now asking necessarily for parents to accept perhaps that their kids have flaws. Not every parent is eager to do that. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that the challenge is to really make sure parents are parenting. And I think you're right that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if, it, if a teacher or a school called home and said, hey, there's a problem with your child, I feel as though parents used to take that more seriously. 
Uh, whereas now, I, I know have lots of friends who are teachers who say the parents don't answer, they don't return the phone call, or when they do raise an issue, the parents are like, well, you deal with it. It is, uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating story and a fascinating issue. The piece in the National Post, people can go look it up. Uh, pandemic may have made Canadian youth meaner, less empathetic, uh, sociologist says. Uh, that sociologist is Caitlin Mendez, who's been with us. Thanks so much for doing this. Really interesting. Thank you. You know, as she says about parents 20 years ago, I can assure you that if a teacher called home to my house and mom or dad had to get on the phone about my misbehavior and... I'm not saying it did happen. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it did. Uh, but there was fear and trembling in the Radley household because I knew there were consequences coming. I, they, I mean, I wasn't beaten. I don't mean that. I just mean grounded or something else. Uh, there were, I knew not to make the, te- and forget the teachers calling home. I, thankfully this never happened. But I knew that if the day ever came that a police officer brought me home, oh, I would, I would still be locked in my room. (laughs) I would still be grounded today if a police officer had ever brought me home. Thank goodness that didn't happen. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Oh, and by the way, quick update. One minute. No, 47 seconds into the Leaf game. The Leafs have scored. Yes, yes, it is not a complete disaster like last game. So there you go. We can all feel better as we bring our good friend Eric Alper into the discussion today. Music writer, music, well, uh, uh, publicist. Uh, you know what, Eric, we got to come up with a simpler introduction for you because you had just, why don't we just say music guy? Sure. Or you can say AI Eric Alper, because this is the AI version of him. He's better looking, smarter, and can actually do things around the house. While he's doing his job as well. That's right. Right. Exactly. How are you, man? I'm doing okay. Thank you. So yes, let's get right into this AI thing, because this is a bizarre, hilarious, well, see, it's hilarious to me. I don't think it's hilarious to Drake or The Weeknd, because a, a song, an AI written Drake, the weekend collaboration is apparently doing really well on Spotify and other places. Lots of people listening to this thing, not written by them. Apparently they had nothing to do with it. This is all computer generated. How big of a problem is this? If AI can now make music that sounds like it comes from recognizable stars. Massive and scary. Um, so there was a TikTok user who goes by the name ghostwriter887 and he merged, he or she actually merged um, Drake and The Weeknd together to do a duet that's called Heart on My Sleeve. And after the song went viral on TikTok, a full version was released on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. So it made the cut for a legitimate song. Now, did that get, let me just interrupt for one second. Did that get onto those places because the people who work there were tricked or is there just an algorithm and it got past the algorithm? It's just really, it's just metadata. So anybody can upload their song that they invented right now um, for the cost of $10. And you can have your song distributed. um, And the metadata doesn't care if you're Phil Collins or if you're Drake. If all of the parts are there and the ISRC code is there, it goes through. And uh, the song ended up getting about a quarter of a million streams and views on YouTube in the first 24 hours. And that, of course, 
uh, prompted Drake and the weekend's labeled Universal Music, who I have a feeling have pretty good lawyers that are just Probably. sitting around waiting for something like this. So they issued a very sternly worded statement about the dangers of AI and, of course, are now threatening to sue not just Ghostwriter 877 once they are able to track him down, but there's also talk about a lawsuit of Spotify, Google, and YouTube because they are the platform that are allowing um, copyright infringement. And that's going to be really interesting um, considering that, you know, there was a survey done last week with 120 songwriters in America. Almost 60% of them are actually using AI um, to create music. What they're doing is they're putting in um, Marvin Gaye beats or they're using Keith Richards guitar-like sounds to create their own music. The major difference, of course, is that they're getting permission to release their so own music. So it's sampling. It's, it's basically a, a more example. modern sample. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, okay, so we understand it, and I, I think everyone gets why the musicians and the label and everyone else, why they would be upset by this. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a high-priced universal lawyer to figure that one out. But if I'm just a fan, and we were talking about this before you came on, if I'm just a fan of a group and the group hasn't produced any music for, I use the example of Rush because Neil Peart is now gone. If I am a fan of a group and a, someone can put together an AI song that sounds like them and sounds really good as a fan, do I care? Well, if you're Liam Gallagher from Oasis, you're actually pretty impressed that somebody last weekend made an entire lost album of Oasis songs wow. like, uh, around 10 years. He loved it. He thought that it was actually better than most of the stuff that he's heard on the radio. <laughs> so um, it, I guess it all depends on where you stand with all of this. You know, we've seen really bad things happen when people used AI and deep fake videos to create um, these, these short clips of things that Donald Trump or Joe Biden never said. We've also seen what happens on January 6th when you mobilize, um, you know, the general public to, to kind of, you know, fall in line behind a politician. With artists, though, it really just comes down to, I just, think two things. It's copyright infringement. Um, Drake and The Weeknd can sue because their names are copyright protected. Um, but it's also that they're using their name to make money off of them when they're not really authorized to do it. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, there is a part of me, and again, I completely understand this. And let's, let's take it a step further. Let's say the artist is now gone. All right. Let's say that yeah, in yeah. 15, 20 years when the, when Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney are now gone and hopefully they live longer than that, but you know, they're getting yeah. up there. Uh, somebody uses AI and creates new Beatles music that sounds really Beatly and really good. You know, do, do most people really care that they know that it's AI, they know it's fake, but hey, it sounds exactly like the music that I like. I think that most people will sort of shrug and go, huh, I'm fine yeah. with it. I agree with you. You know, you and I have talked in the past about the the amazing technology that holograms are yeah, now yeah. at. And, you know, I'd pay a couple of bucks to go see Roy Orbison in concert that's very lifelike and talks to the crowd as if it's 1965. You and I have also talked about wouldn't it be great if we all got down to the, you know, to, to cops 
Coliseum, or whatever it's called now, I think it's called, um, and to go see the Beatles or Elvis Presley in 1956. Sure. I'd go in a heartbeat. I think where where the, the the line is drawn is when it's not actually authorized by anybody. But you know, you have a really good point. Can AI have a soul? Can it have a feeling? And if it can write a song that can make people cry, isn't that the best part of music? Is that emotion? We all watch movies from Hollywood and TV shows in Hollywood. We know it's not real, but yet we still feel those emotions. I think where it's interesting is I, I read this morning that there was a professor in a university in the U.S. that was using Jay-Z to rap Shakespeare in order to make his students understand that Shakespeare was cool. That's really interesting to me. I don't think that they obviously got Jay-Z's permission, and I'm not sure that Jay-Z would care, but maybe he would. Maybe he's just like, look, anybody that is using my name, I just got to get permission. But when you're dead and you have an estate to look after this, they actually might be willing, more willing than not to say, you know what, let's just try this. If AI catches on as a music writing thing, now let's let's even move one step further. Let's say that we're not even talking about covering the Beatles or Rush yeah. or whatever. We've created now a new group that is doesn't exist, but we're using technology and figuring it out. If AI were to do that and be successful, does that completely exonerate Millie Vanilli? <laughs> um, I think Millie Vanilli, to be honest with you, I mean, there's a whole other topic. I think they got the raw end of the deal because there was no indication that there were other pop stars of that era that were singing on their own tracks. Um, and if there are people out there who believe that, you know, look, uh, Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra aren't real authentic because they never wrote their songs. Right. Bizarre. But then that's not that step away from Britney Spears um, loving her and kind of going, well, she doesn't write any of her songs either. So what's this whole, what does the word authentic really mean? And and do people really care? Well, um, right now, if you are a good looking music star, you probably are going to have a whole lot more success than if you're a butt ugly music star and not to be too blunt, but I mean, that's the right. reality, which says nothing about your ears don't hear visual beauty. Your ears hear whether a song is good or bad. And yet somehow visual has become a key part of the music industry. Oh, I, I, any moment now, there's going to be a couple of songs that are going to hit the billboard hot 100 with the same artistry, with the same simulated humanity that will resemble real performers. And those actual humans that we are will listen to it and claim it's real and claim the electric guitar that we're listening to are just as good as Eric Clapton or the soul funk sounds of a drum are going to be just as moving grooving as Prince ever did. Um, and there's probably going to be a song that is going to hit the Billboard Hot 100 and it's going to come out months later that that song was literally 100% created by AI, um, disrupting everything and ruining, of course, the reputation of that artist. But who's to say, look, I, you and I both know, and we've talked about this, uh, about music industry issues in the past, you can better believe that although Universal might be dangling a lawsuit in front of all these people, half the other people at that company are saying, 
Do we really need those artists that upset uh-huh. us all exactly. the time? Well, one more thing on this one. I mean, look, we've talked about the Beatles, and they were trailblazers with the things they did with new sounds and everything, but not all of the sounds that were in all of the Beatles' music was made by the Beatles or even by an orchestra or by an instrument. There was weird technical stuff that they tried to make interesting feedback or whatever else that was all done essentially not with computers, but with the instrument, with the, with the technology of the time, how different is that from saying, well, they didn't really then play all their own music. I'm not slagging the Beatles, yeah. but, uh, and look, that's, that's not one step away from, um, in the 1980s and nineties when hip hoppers were using samples yeah. of other musicians, instruments, and even their voices at times to create the hook, the best part of the song. Um, how much and, money does vanilla ice have because of queen? Right, right. Or, um, Rob bass doing it, you know, it takes two. I mean, those, the best part of that song is the James Brown yelling in the background. Um, (laughs) Now, in the beginning, none of those newer performers gave money or credit to the older performers of the music that they were doing, Um, but it's no different because they didn't actually create that music in the first place. It's not, and I know people are like, well, you know, I, I, I may not I, you know, I may not really care, but this is kind of history repeating itself. I, I've read enough to know that, you know, when Bob Dylan performed in 1965 with an electric guitar, the music industry and the musicians associations were like, this is going to put folk artists out of, you know, out of jobs. This is going to put orchestras to shame. Um, so, you know, the ability that AI can do the things that it can do on its own, um, is kind of astonishing now. Mm. All right. Let me, uh, let me go back in technology for a second. We, while with the time we have left, let me, let me back up to some old technology, but once again, so you and I, I think some time ago talked about, I think it was you and I, if not, we, we should have, um, talked about the return of vinyl and how vinyl is really having a moment again and people are buying records and, you know, it's clearly not the same absolutely pristine sound that you would get either on a CD or in, you know, in some other ways, but people love the warmth of it. Um, People have talked about CDs now, which are now old technology. I know Neil Young at one time, I don't know if he still is, was working on some new digital thing where there would be much larger files so you get much more... Um, much more of the actual sound that rather than the compressed stuff you get on Apple Music, all those things, all modern technology at a time. But now sales of cassettes are on the rise. And for the life of me, with all those things I just talked about, I kind of get it. I cannot for the life of me understand why anybody would want to buy a cassette in 2023. If you go through the Billboard album chart right now, um, the top 20 albums have not only the vinyl version and a CD version and a cassette version, but there's there's a, a multitudes of different versions. Some songs are only found on the cassette version. Some songs are only found on the vinyl version. Um, in the case of a BTS, for instance, or Blackpink, two of the biggest 
K-pop groups around, there are more than 20 different versions for the fans to buy of their new releases that made the album jump um, into the top five on the on the, the the album charts around the world. To me, as a fan, it's just another way to prove how big of a fan you are and to help support the artists you love. To the artists, it's just another piece of merchandise. I haven't seen the numbers, but I don't think that Walkman sales are doing anything right now. Um, I think it's just something to put on your shelf and say, look at that. Yeah, I, I have to believe that you're right. I have to believe this is simply like buying a hat from the band at a concert or something or a T-shirt yeah. as opposed to saying, I really want to listen to this on cassette for, for so many reasons, not, not, notwithstanding the sound quality. It's, it's, oh, it's garbage. They break. They are not convenient. Yeah. Um, you know, all, the, the, only, the only thing I think fondly about with tapes when I think back is opening up the 15 times folded over <laughs> thing. And then like you used to have with the album, you know, liner notes, but now it's in like the world's tiniest print and, um, and feeling very youthful because I could read that. And I knew darn well, my parents, their eyes could never read something that small. It made me feel young. When parents told us as kids, don't sit too close to the television because it would ruin our <laughs> eyes, um, they should have been talking about reading liner notes. I have a feeling that's why we're all wearing glasses right now. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think so too. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a bizarre thing. The, the, again, I, I shouldn't say the only thing. Do you I think... know, do you know how much the first Walkman is going for right now on eBay? I, I, I look every now and again, $1,700. You can buy the original first run. Like a version of the first one, not the first one. No, a version of, the, of yeah, the, okay. the the first generation of it. You can buy Walkmans right now from Sony for just under $100. I mean, they're, they're clunky and they're wonky and the sound isn't good. But like I said, I think it's just something for Taylor Swift fans to post on I Instagram. I suppose. Because, I mean, look, I, again, when I said that the only good thing that I remember was, you know, with the liner notes, there was, there was one great thing about cassettes, and let's be, you know, very clear about this, is you could not make your own vinyl back when you were in high school, when you heard songs, make a, a, a mixtape or something. You yeah. couldn't make a mix vinyl. Um, you know, back at that time, cassettes gave you the option. We all did it. We all made a mixtape for our girlfriend or boyfriend, or we all, you know, played record off the radio while it was playing. And we recorded our favorite songs minus the first bar or two, because we could never get to it quite fast <laughs> enough. Uh, I remember the, uh, I can't remember, I think it was Start Me Up. For the longest time, I never heard the opening, like three riffs of Start Me Up, because the recording I had, I didn't get to it fast enough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, cassette tapes were great for that. So what but you're saying is that you were illegally downloading oh, music, 100%. off the music industry, even as a teenager. 100%. Right? And, and, and I remember that back in the day, we thought, and you, you're, you know, you may be a little younger than me, but we all thought the highest form of musical technology was that unbelievably cool thing they figured out with cassette recorders where it would skip to the end of the song. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I had, I had one of those. And then it was a marvel when you can actually, um, you, you can actually have two cassette players going at the Oh yeah. Time, so you can borrow somebody else's mixtape and grab it for yourself. Oh there's, yeah. And there's, and there's a real, there's a number of websites out there. If you, if you just go to Google you can find them. Um, it's the art of the mixtape. 
and it's the art that people were making around the world of various mixtapes of the covers that they were making and the fonts and the colors um, and the, the um, you know all the writing of the bands like yeah. they would try to replicate the Clash logo and everything. It's very very cool. I used to post a lot of that stuff on on Twitter just as a you know form of diving into the nostalgia pool from time to time, and it it goes viral every single time because people just never forget that time. Just talking about this is making me think there should be a John Hughes movie showing up at any moment now because it's just <laughs> I, I, I'm I, I'm like sinking Where's James Spader when you need him. Yeah, I'm sinking deeply into the '80s even while we talk here. I I, I should be putting on my parachute pants and uh, you know maybe finding some nearby woman wearing you leg warmers and I'm drink ready to water go. Water and have a lie down after the show. That's what you're. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thanks, man. Always great to talk to you. Have a good week. It is, uh, yeah, I don't know if, I, I mean, I still have some cassettes in the house. I do. I, and I still have a, what we used to call a ghetto blaster. I think I have two of them, in fact. I, I mean, I could still play my cassettes. Here's the problem is, um, so uh, long story short, and I won't go into all of it, but I found an old cassette at my parents' place when we were cleaning it out that had family stuff on it. Cassettes over time get, they, well, they not only do they wear out, but they get stretchy and they get, so when I tried to play it, my sister who, you know, has a, I think the recording was her when she was about nine. So she had a nine-year-old girl's voice. It's supposed to be kind of like this. I put it into the cassette and it was, I, this is, and it's like, well, I don't think that's how I remember her sounding. (laughs) It's, uh, cassettes were wonderful. They just don't have an endless shelf life is all. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.